Welcome to the Oxford Human Rights Hub seminar series podcast. This is a podcast with Professor David Bilschitz speaking at the Oxford Faculty of Law on the 10th of March 2015 on the topic, Is a Business and Human Rights Treaty Necessary? This podcast was proudly supported by the Oxford Human Rights Hub and the Oxford Martin School Human Rights for Future Generations program. Today we're going to talk about something that's really a project, hopefully, that will happen in the future. Um, we need part of it is actually to think about the very contours of uh, what a treaty on business and human rights would look like. And so one of the things that I would like to do is really invite you to do some thinking about that with me today. Um, we There's clearly a lot of opposition as well. So my first slide is really just saying, right, we've had a lot of difficulty in, in achieving human rights advances in the world, and the obstacles often seem overwhelming. And that as human rights lawyers, in a way, we need to let ourselves not be uh, deterred by those obstacles and focus on what the goal is. Now, the focus of much of the debate around business, a business and human rights treaty has been on the difficulties and obstacles to achieving a treaty on business and human rights. And many of you will be familiar with the work of Professor John Ruggie, who was a special representative of the Secretary General on the issue of business and human rights. And he has issued various salvos in the last few months against the Comprehensive Treaty, and various people have responded to that. In my view, what I've taken in this paper is I think that's to get matters the wrong way around. The first step is really to find out and to think about why is a treaty important, uh, and then to look at the objections to the treaty. Okay, And uh, it seems to me that people have actually allowed the objections to be in the foreground. So um, ultimately... The argument I'm going to make is that a treaty is both a moral and legal necessity for the international community. Um, understanding the purpose and goal of such an instrument will help us determine its content. And that also requires examining some of the gaps in the existing regulatory regimes relating to business and human rights and why the current UN instrument, the guiding principles on business and human rights, do not adequately address the problems of international law. Now, I'm going to suggest that there are problems in international law and they need solutions in law rather than soft instruments. Um, soft instruments also have their, I'm not going to knock soft instruments, uh, soft instruments also have their use, but uh, international treaty law, international human rights law has a specific goal and function. And so the structure of my presentation is going to be as follows. I'm going to make four arguments uh, for the treaty and then I'm going to turn to some of the objections that have been lodged against it. I think it's very interesting to consider those objections in light of the arguments, and also why the proposal by Raggi for a more limited treaty on gross human rights violations will not meet the purpose uh, of having such a treaty. So the first argument is really an argument which I call from binding human rights obligations. And this may be a little bit simple for some of you, but I think it's important to begin with foundational starting points around the protection of fundamental rights. Where do rights come from? What are they based in? What are their foundations? And the foundations of rights discourse and international law is really in the notion of the inherent dignity or worth of the person, which somehow there's a relationship between that dignity and the treatment that's required to be offered in relation to such a person, and, the, and that dignity essentially provides a justification for affording them uh, fundamental rights and protection for their fundamental interests, which we can see in a similar way. Um, fundamental rights at the international level essentially apply equally to all humans and are universal, and they cannot be renounced, lost, or forfeited. They are inalienable. 
Now, one of the central elements of our fundamental rights is that they are concerned with ensuring that the entitlements of individuals are realized. And they come from what I label the perspective of recipients. They come from what an agent, what, what an individual can claim uh, in terms of the entitlements. And they're directed at various other agents and impose obligations on those agents ultimately to desist from behavior that would imperil those entitlements and to perhaps assist in the realization of those entitlements. Now, the focus in the past around fundamental rights discourse was on the fact that governments would have those obligations. And at the time of the French Revolution, for example, the focus was on the, the power of the state, essentially, and regulating the power of the state. And that was the historical context. However, the fact that fact that the historical focus was on states does not mean that they are the only agents bound by rights, uh, rights obligations. Um, other agents are completely capable of having such rights obligations. And in fact, the inference from the notion of fundamental rights seems to be that all other agents who are capable of, in, of affecting those rights will have such obligations. Now, so for example, looking at something like the fundamental right to life, okay, uh, which, uh, let's say, prohibits the state from interfering with one's existence, okay? It's a strange thing to claim that individuals have a fundamental right to life, but only the state must respect that fundamental right. Corporations can kill you, violate your rights at will, right? Um, so just intuitively, I'm trying to suggest that fundamental rights ultimately address and bind all agents who have the capacity to violate those rights. Now, the capacities of business are wide today. We can actually add in the um, empirical context, and we see uh, the case of the Rana Plaza. Many of you will be familiar with of 1,100 over 1,100 people being killed in Bangladesh. We see a recent, I think it was 50 years recent, recent disaster in Bhopal, okay, uh, where there was a gas leak and uh, in a plant run by Union Carbide, and 15,000 people died. Right in my own country, South Africa. Um, we had a major crisis uh, about in the last 20 years relating to healthcare and the running right of HIV AIDS and the fact that only wealthy people could gain access to medication because of the structure both of law and also the greed of pharmaceutical companies. Okay, And the question of whether they in fact have some duty to render life-saving medication and technologies to thousands of people who perhaps could die because of the high prices and who cannot afford it, okay? So we recognize that the capacities of, in, of corporations are very high. So we start off with the claim of fundamental rights are concerned to protect individuals in the enjoyment of their rights, okay? Business can seriously impact upon that enjoyment and fundamental human dignity. And as agents, they are therefore placed under obligations by fundamental rights, okay? So that's the kind of structure of that argument. And I would suggest that in this world, not only this is important in relation to business, but in other actors as well. We look at IS, a non-state entity, although it claims to be a state, but something like that. Uh, we see the importance of holding that actors that are not uh, th that are not states are bound by fundamental rights and addressees thereof. Okay. Now, a further argument in relation to the bindingness of fundamental rights comes from the notion of the state's duty to protect. And international law, as many of you will know, has recognized a duty on the state to protect individuals against harm to their rights by third parties. And I was thinking, what are the implications about that? It's kind of a strange idea that the state has a duty to protect one from harm from third parties, but then the third, 
the third party has no duty in relation to the individual. And it seems to me to be extremely strange if third parties were not bound by international law to comply with such requirements, there would be no reason for the state to ensure that they should do so. So the state can be required to impose and enforce an obligation that the treaty already recognizes. In other words, the reason the state must protect you against violation of the rights by third parties is that it's a bad thing for those third parties to do those things, and it's legally not allowed for them to do so, and therefore they have a duty to, uh, logically, that flows from that duty to protect, um, ultimately, uh, to protect you from harm. Now, um, why do we actually need a treaty in relation to this argument? Well, one of the central flaws of the work of the Special Representative, which took place over six years, was to assert that international human rights do not bind corporations, other than in relation to international crimes, okay? And this has created great confusion. Um, I would suggest it's wrong morally that, uh, that corporations are not bound by fundamental rights, and also, in fact, in law as well. I think, basically, from the arguments that I've provided, we can actually derive a legal notion that uh, corporations were already bound. The, the SRSG basically took a stance against that, probably for expedient reasons, um, in order because corporations were very unhappy with the notion that we're bound by fundamental rights and we wanted to get them to buy into this notion and so therefore firmly stated that um, they do not have uh, binding obligations. And so a key role for a treaty would be to recognize what was implicit already, that businesses are legally bound by international human rights and that states may have a particular role in enforcing these obligations but that they are not the only ones bound by human rights. Now that sounds kind of basic. So why is that important? Okay. Well, to illustrate that in actually a concrete case, I took the Socioeconomic Rights Action Center versus Nigeria case. Some of you might be familiar in um, uh, the African Commission, and it dealt with the exploitation of uh, the of oil in Ogoniland in Nigeria and the terrible environmental damage that arose from Shell's activities in that area. And essentially, there were serious human rights violations that occurred uh, for the Ogoni people, people who had lived for a long time in their land. Uh, they were forced off their land. They couldn't eat. They couldn't, you know, and essentially were rendered worse off. They weren't necessarily in great conditions originally, but they were rendered even worse off, and they couldn't even subsist on their land. Um, and the complaint was brought before the African Commission um, in relation to this, this problem. And the African Commission focuses on the duties of the Nigerian government. And the Nigerian government is found to violate its obligations to protect the people from these harms by giving the green light to oil companies to do these various things. Okay? But very strangely, it didn't even inquire into the conduct of Shell, who was the primary cause. Okay? But the idea that the obligations fell on the state essentially meant that, well, you didn't look at what the company had done. So it looked at what Nigeria had done to facilitate the violations, but it didn't look at the prime mover, in a sense, of those violations. And that, I think, highlights the normative gap that exists at the international level in holding corporations to be bound by human rights obligations, too. There's a further reason why this is important. The victims of rights violations can only claim a remedy if there is an obligation that has been abrogated in relation to fundamental rights. And the ability to claim a remedy presupposes a right has been violated. Now, an interesting facet of the guiding principles on, uh, that Raji has developed is in the third pillar, he recognizes the importance of access to a remedy, and in fact, many times a legal remedy that individuals should have. Okay? 
But the problem is corporations don't have a concomitant legal obligation. They only have a some vague notion of a responsibility sourced in social expectations. So it's very hard to see how a remedy should follow from no violation of a legal obligation. Okay, and so what's central here is that one needs to have a violation, a legal obligation, uh, to assert that there's a legal obligation in order to find that there's a remedy against this. Okay, so that's the first set of arguments note, rooted in the notion of binding obligation. The second set of arguments relates to the idea of norm development. Okay, now the fact that a company is bound by fundamental rights still leaves open many questions about the nature and extent of these obligations. Who has the obligations? When do they have the obligations? How extensive are the obligations? Okay, and the nature of business entities and activities must condition the obligations that flow from fundamental rights. They're not necessarily going to be the same obligations as those of the state. So we need to think very carefully on the exact character of the obligations. Now the current guiding principles fail to answer that question. They simply assert corporations generally have a responsibility to respect fundamental rights, to avoid harming fundamental rights. Okay? But there's a number of there's a number of questions that relate to that. Okay? What exactly constitutes harm? And we know in general in fundamental rights law, the mere infringement of a right is not sufficient to determine that an actionable wrong has occurred. One needs to consider whether there is a strong justification for the infringing measure as well. Okay, so the sort of two-stage inquiry that usually occurs in relation to violations of, of state uh, fundamental rights. So complex questions here are raised. And so I'm going to give examples to think about the actual context. Okay, let's say the company institutes a ban on downloading pornographic material onto laptops of employees, both at home and at work. And it provides in its contract with employees it can monitor all activities on the company's laptop. Okay, so anything you do on your laptop can be monitored by the corporation in in exercising this policy. Now, does that policy violate its obligations in relation to the right to free speech and privacy of employees? Well, we need to construe whether these rights, whether in fact these rights include a right of individuals to use company laptops for purposes of downloading pornography or using their work station for private purposes or other purposes, for example. I'm using pornography because it's one of the classic cases in relation to public law as well. So there are two ways of considering these questions, okay? The issue of application and limitation, okay? So the application question is, in what way does the right to free speech apply to companies and what obligations does it impose upon them? In South Africa, courts have outlined three criteria to determine whether or not um, uh, fundamental rights apply to corporations. We actually have a, a situation system of direct application, which is rather unusual in the world. And the courts look at what the nature of the right Okay, the potential invasion by a party other than the state, and the role of the party in society. So one would need to consider the nature of the right in this case, free speech, privacy, arguably important, the potential invasion of the free speech right or privacy right, and we can there consider the way in which computers have become ubiquitous today, and the way in which people don't separate their personal and their, and their, and their uh, business uh, workstations, and the nature of the company. Um, how it impacts on employment, how it's dominant in the marketplace, as well as its nature as an entity with both what I see the company as, a, as an entity we can discuss this in question time, as having both a private and a public dimension. Okay, it's not a purely private entity nor a purely public entity. Okay, now related to that are interesting questions concerning the nature of the obligations of a corporation, right? 
Um, do corporations only have large negative obligations to avoid harming through their own conduct and through that of others? And that's largely asserted in the guiding principles, although Ruggie says there can be positive uh, conduct required in order to avoid harm. Nevertheless, the focus is on avoiding harm. Or do corporations also have positive obligations actively to assist in the realization of fundamental rights? And that's the more wider argument. It's an argument that's particularly important in developing countries. And I'm of the view that uh, corporations do have some positive obligations of a limited scope. Um, and, but there's an interesting question here about the nature and scope of their positive obligations as well. So that's questions of application. There's also questions of limitations. If obligations are imposed on the company by rights, are there justifiable reasons why the company may sometimes infringe rights? Okay, and as I say, I've referred already to the two-stage inquiry that we see in South Africa and Canada and other places, which usually involves the consideration of the purpose of the, of the infringing measure as well as its proportionality. Okay, so we would have to think about, is there a legitimate reason for the company concern, let's say, in relation to pornographic material, right? Could there be a violation of criminal laws in some cases, okay? Um, maybe there would be unwitting harm to the reputation of the company if something pops up in the course of a presentation, okay? And uh, perhaps also another employee might use the computer and be offended if, if they see something that they wouldn't like to see. So there might be a worry about other employees and what kind of workplace it creates. These all seem to be reasonable concerns. Okay? The policy might seem rationally related to the goals. Okay? However, the proportionality inquiry here seems to, it doesn't seem to be met, right, in relation to the example I've given. Is it necessary, for example, right? Could one have a more restrictive policy um, be adopted with a lesser impact on rights, right? Could one have a, a, a policy, for example, that required uh, the, the corporation, um, I don't know, not to, um, you know, not to have, uh, you know, to play certain, to only have access to certain folders on the computer or something like that, or uh, to make it clear that this computer is one that you can't use for any personal purposes or something like that. And is there a proportionality between the benefits of a company's policy and harm caused to the rights in question? Okay, so I think. Uh, a, 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 a far-reaching policy that reaches into the person's personal home is less likely to meet that proportionality requirement uh, than one that's more restricted, for example, to the workplace. Okay, and so there, there are all kinds of fact issues that arise in determining what are the responsibilities and obligations of a corporation. And so, for me, one of the key roles for a treaty would be to provide the basis for international standards surrounding business and human rights to clarify and develop the implications of fundamental rights for business, and that I see as a long-term project. And so one of the things that a treaty would be, do is to set up a body whose role it would be to provide guidance on the application of fundamental rights to business, and that could be like we see in other treaty mechanisms, a committee to issue general comments, to provide guidance in relation to specific rights. We've got a long way to go in relation to each right, thinking through its application in relation to business, and also perhaps some kind of tribunal to develop case law, which I'll discuss a little bit uh, later in relation to the fourth argument. Okay? I also think the treaty could help stimulate national norms in relation to corporations and human rights as well. The express recognition of binding legal obligations and the application of human rights norms over time would also help develop law in local jurisdictions. And in some countries which have direct application of international law, that might be important because it would directly apply. And in other countries like my own where it doesn't directly apply, 
Nevertheless, those international standards could be of importance in interpreting local constitutional provisions as well. So um, that's arguments for the real development of uh, fundamental rights in, and its relationship with corporations. The third argument relates to issues around competing obligations, right? And the context is the rise of globalization, which has led to the rapid expansion of international law and legal regimes in relating to international commerce. We have a wide-ranging international trade regimes which govern tra free trade across the world and the violations thereof. And then we have a set of treaties which are entered into known as bilateral and multilateral investment treaties, which provide protections for corporations investing in foreign countries and allow them to sue in tribunals set up if they claim their interests have been harmed. And this set of law, these set of international trade regimes and treaties, they have occurred separately from human rights law. They've developed separately, and the question is how human rights concerns intersect with these regimes, right? Um, so, giving you some examples, okay, we already raised in the WTO law issues of uh, healthcare and patent protection for pharmaceuticals, and whether this could be used to prevent governments from providing life-saving medication to people where they needed to break patents to do so. And we know that became a major issue and led to a lot of negotiation and the Doha round and various other things, okay? International investment law, an interesting example is the Forrester case, again relating to my own country, where a foreign corporation reached a bilateral investment treaty with South Africa and then attempted to sue South Africa on that basis um, when a new mining law, they claimed, expropriated their property. And the new law was essentially designed to address the legacy of apartheid in mining and to address the inequality that had arisen and so really to be a positive discrimination measure. And here we had the strange thing that that new, quite progressive legislation was being taken on uh, in, a, this se in a separate kind of adjudication mechanism by a foreign corporation, uh, basically on the basis that it violated their rights in terms of that particular treaty. Okay, and, it, and, and so there was this real uh, tension going on between human rights and the investment rights of the corporation involved. Okay, now what's the need for a treaty? Okay, business and human rights treaty would importantly recognize that business has legal obligations flowing from fundamental rights. These legal obligations would at least have an equal status to other rights and obligations held by businesses in terms of other regimes. And this would also enable commercial interests to be balanced against fundamental rights obligations that arise in a specific context in dispute resolution mechanisms. Okay, now uh, Raji himself actually quotes a, 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 a person who is involved in arbitrating many of these disputes and arbitrator says as follows. If the arbitrators apply something outside their clear jurisdiction mandate of the treaty because they sympathize, they'll exceed their jurisdiction, risk annulment setting aside and their reputation. It is law they have to apply, not airy-fairy, wishy-washy concepts of desirability with vague soft law claims. And that really draws home, I think, quite importantly, the problem of not having countervailing hard law to the hard law of WTO treaties and investment law treaties. Okay, that you need countervailing hard law binding business in relation to fundamental rights and that can function as a, uh, as a counterweight. Okay? Now, that quote also shows us that actually, as many people will know, there's a big debate as to whether there's any hierarchy in international law and um, many people would argue that there is no clear hierarchy. I believe that's normatively wrong. There should be a hierarchy in relation to fundamental rights. Whether the should is in fact an is, 
is another question, okay? But nevertheless, um, what recognizing a, 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 a business and human rights treaty can also create and assist in a sense with some of the interpretations of those other instruments. So having an international trade instrument, there are exceptions in the general agreement on tariffs and trade um, in relation to uh, sort of general public interest element. And if one has a if one has a business and human rights treaty, that can be used to consider and help interpret those elements of, of the actual uh, general agreement on tariffs and trade. The similar thing could happen with international investment treaties. Um, and uh, uh, in the absence of a clear reference to human rights in the treaties, uh, they could either be used in interpreting them or possibly as a conflicting obligation that must be considered. So again, there's an important argument for a hard legal obligation to compete with the other trade-based obligations uh, to avoid us becoming simply a legal system designed around uh, commercial interests of the powerful. So the last argument relates to what I call the arguments on institution building and remedy. Okay? And this relates to three intersecting challenges relating to international law and multinational corporations specifically, okay? which causes major issues of holding corporations to account for violations of rights and ensuring individuals can gain a remedy. Now, the jurisdiction challenge, um, these are the three challenges. The first one being what I call the jurisdiction challenge. Each state is being sovereign. Multinational corporations operate across their borders. Okay, if there's a violation in one, uh, in which jurisdiction can one institute action for remedy? Can one only do it in that specific jurisdiction in which it occurs? Now, the problem with doing that is relates to the second challenge, which is what we call the weak governance zone challenge, where essentially laws are not enforced in many instances and courts are not independent in weak governance zones or various states that exist in the world, okay, uh, where there often are, let's say, uh, lucrative minerals. How can we hold corporations to account in those contexts, okay? Um, so if we only can hold a corporation to account in a specific state and that state is essentially a weak governance zone, then the corporation is not going to be held to account in that particular state. And then we've got a third problem, which is the corporate law challenge, right? the corporate structure challenge. Corporations are separate legal personalities with limited liability. And a corporation in one jurisdiction is really a different entity legally to the corporation in another. Okay? So there's no actual thing that exists as a multinational corporation. It's a series of corporations. So how does one hold the whole corporate structure or the principal element of that structure accountable for the failure to meet human rights obligations? Okay? So, uh, you know, I think about like a case of the DRC, uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, and, uh, you know, major environmental damage being caused there. You're going to have problems of a weak governance zone where really the courts don't function very well. And um, the structure of international law prevents, it can prevent the corporation from being held responsible anywhere else. And this creates a major governance gap. And how can that be addressed? Right? And this, in a sense, was part of the background to the formation of some of the, the, the for example, the, the John Rugby's mandate as well. Well, the one approach could be what I call diffuse and universal jurisdiction. Each country could have jurisdiction to hold companies responsible for violations elsewhere. And this would allow states with stronger legal systems to hold multinationals to account. Okay, and the example, the clear example of this was the Alien Tort Claims Act, okay, in the United States, which essentially allowed for the founding of jurisdiction in the United States for torts committed in other countries. Okay, there was no case that reached really successful um, judgment, but there were settlements 
that arose as a result of the school, I suppose you could say is with some form of accountability. However, many of you will again be familiar with the recent Keo Bell case, which essentially narrowed the possibilities and use of the Alien Tort Claims Act to only those, those um, cases which touch and concern the territory of the United States. And so the possibility of actually holding corporations to account in the U.S. for violations abroad which don't really relate to the U.S. has become severely curtailed. Now, we could use that model and say, well, we should globalize that model and try and get various countries which develop legal systems to enact laws relating to Alien Tort Claims Act. I've gone to the Parliament of South Africa and suggested it, right? But the lawmakers are a bit skeptical, right? Because on the one hand, there's a collection action problem. They, they regard the country as becoming a less desirable destination for any state that passes these laws. My country, for example, wants to attract foreign investment, and now it, it, they can be held responsible in South Africa for these things. They're not that, they won't necessarily be that keen. Okay, and Keogh Bell, actually the judgment, the majority judgment expresses that worry that the U.S. is going to be the human rights enforcer in the world. That doesn't sound like a terrible thing to me, but nevertheless, uh, it was, uh, the judges were obviously worried that that was going to turn companies wanting to be based in the U.S. And also, of course, there's complexities of bringing cases across jurisdictions as well. Okay, so obviously when you do so, there's issues of evidence, problems of legal representation. You're often dealing with very poor people with difficulty to access legal representation. And of course, different approaches in the law to liability and varied kind of issues as well that arise in that regard. Okay, so a treaty can help solve some of these problems. Okay, and the model here of this kind of approach is the UN Convention Against Corruption, okay, where states essentially commit themselves to working together, okay, to enacting laws to enable successful cases to be brought, right, this was done in relation to corruption, and you could do this in relation to a business and human rights treaty, everyone commits to passing these various laws, which addresses the collective action problem if you're all going to do it together, okay, and you also deal with the difficulty of bringing these cases, so you commit to work together to investigate and address the technical matters relating to prosecution. Again, something done in relation to um, in relation to corruption and would address some of those problems. So this is one model which one could go for, and it may be the model, we can discuss what's more likely to happen, it may be the model that's followed, because you might think that states are not really going to want to give up too much of their own uh, sort of ability and power, and so they may want to push this uh, model. Okay. The other main model would be a global adjudicatory body, right? Creating an international mechanism to adjudicate on civil and criminal claims against corporations, okay? And so to, in other words, one would hold the jurisdiction over corporations um, that cross borders, okay? One could try and limit it somehow, so one doesn't have jurisdiction over every corporation, or operate in countries where judicial systems do not operate effectively. And that would involve creating a uniform uh, system of accountability across the world, which might actually be quite desirable, right? If one actually thinks that one body could actually develop its case law and one could think about how to approach it, and one would actually have a clear set of expectations, okay? And that could give effect to the right to have access to a remedy, and also, I think, very importantly, through particular case law, assist in norm development. So I mentioned the importance of before in the, in the second argument about norm development, but an important one is, of course, as we know, law often develops casuistically, and so through developing particular in particular cases, you can actually develop uh, the actual norms themselves, okay? And there have been some suggestions about that. I, I think uh, an organization called Lawyers for Better Business is based here. Um, they themselves have actually put forward some proposals for what that would actually look like, right? Maybe some of you are involved with that. 
So those are four of the arguments, right? They may be related to things that you're already very familiar with, right? But I think I'm, what I'm trying to do is create the case um, and and really, you know, essentially create a cumulative case of why there's a really strong, powerful argument for the treaty, uh, for the treaty itself, right? So what kind of objections might there be to this um, uh, uh, process, okay? So um, the Human Rights Council resolution last year, um, there were two Human Rights Council resolutions last year, okay? One of them set in, in place in motion a process which would possibly lead to a treaty. It's going to form an intergovernmental working group which would engage around a treaty, and I think its first meeting is about to be in July this year, okay? Um, the second one sort of wanted to just build on the guiding principles and not really, and consider what other possibilities might exist, okay? And this came from a rather divided uh, sort of world community, which we'll talk about a bit. And in this Human Rights Council re resolution, which set in, in place this, in motion, this process for a uh, intergovernmental working group, um, the focus is on transnational corporations and other business enterprises. And then there's a kind of infamous footnote that was put in because of negotiations, which said that other business enterprises are those with a transnational character, and this does not apply to local businesses registered in terms of relevant domestic law. So Ruggie has jumped on this, and he's criticized highly the restricted focus that any treaty would have. He said it would limit its usefulness, the definition of other business enterprises doesn't take account of the fact that, well, uh, businesses may have a transnational character, but they often use very localized businesses in supply chains, okay? And it doesn't take account of the integrated nature of business today, okay? So that's the, that's the charge, okay? So in response, I think there are a few things that can be said, right? Firstly, there are important particularities that multinational corporations create for international law. And so some good reasons why international law might at least stop with focusing on multinational corporations. Um, as we've seen, there's issues of international investment law and arbitrations. The international system creates conditions in which such entities become viable and can seem to be seen to have a responsibility to ensure effective regulation of those treaties, of those corporations, sorry. The lack of accountability for harm in weak governance zones and the increasing number of corporations in this category. So, um, there's an argument, and these kinds of issues suggest an argument why international law might legitimately focus on dealing with a problem that really arises out of international law, whereas issues around local corporations really raise questions that arise in local domestic jurisdictions. Okay, The vagueness of the transnational definition, as we saw, uh, an enterprise of a transnational character, that's not really defined anywhere else. What does it actually mean? Okay, That vagueness in itself might be a strength, right? because one could include many more corporations in, in it than necessary. And also, one could argue that there would be a, a knock-on effect, that once norms are established in relation to multinational corporations, it might be hard not to apply those norms in relation to local corporations as well. And one would have a problem in, in not following through a supply chain. One could well argue that if a multinational corporation just said, well, I'm not worrying about what's happening with this child labor being used uh, at the end of the supply chain, well, they're actually violating one of their own obligations as well. Okay. So the integrated nature of the world may be a strength that leads to application to local corporations too. So even if one does get a rather limited treaty in relation to multinational corporations, that may still have strong beneficial effects, which can have impact on local corporations as well. Now, the focus on multinational corporations limits the number of corporations to whom the treaty would apply as well, which might actually be a positive, because Raji has himself criticized the problem that there are many millions of corporations, so that would be a problem. And 
one could argue that actually this approach was also an extension of his very approach of principles, pragmat pragmatism, that one uh, pragmatically looks at what can actually be got and tries to develop and do as much as one can principle, uh, in a principled manner with what is feasible at the particular time. So it's strange to be criticized for that. The principle, of course, and I should express that strongly, is my view that all corporations should be bound, irrespective of whether of a local international nature, but there are reasons why international law might begin its focus on multinational corporations. Okay, the second set of uh, objections raised relates to the scale of the treaty, that there are too many diverse concerns uh, such a treaty would have. It would have to regulate so many different things, it's too abstract, and it would ultimately be of little use to people. Okay. Well, my view is that this, these are not a strong set of objections. The treaty ultimately will be aimed at setting a framework and a whole range of principles to assess, assist in addressing these complex questions. Um, ultimately, um, it will be a mechanism for norm development and possibly adjudication. And over time, the treaty would move from rather abstract provisions to more concrete ones, which would have real consequences for people. And we found that a very strange part that it wouldn't have real consequences for people. Okay? And also, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Right? One's not looking at a treaty coming and taking the place of all the ILO standards that have been developed. Right? There's no need to do that. One would draw on those and simply uh, you know, use them where necessary. Um, so there would be areas where there's a need to develop the standards, but also areas where we already have good standards, and the treaty would just complement that. The long term and the short term, people, he claims, cannot wait for long-term treaties to be negotiated, and it, such a process can distract from implementing the guiding principles. I think that underlies a lot of his concern, because the guiding principles is a lot of the work spent on for six years, and ultimately there's going to be a concern that it will not, it will affect the implementation. I don't see this as a zero-sum game, right? It, I see no reason why the guiding principles cannot be seen to be complementary and help develop the environment in which a treaty becomes possible. Treaty is going to be doing a different thing. It's going to become a harder law. The guiding principles can help assist. They can help develop corporations to improve their own internal processes. Uh, Multi-layered governance, which Rani likes to talk about, and polycentric governance, all that kind of thing. Those are all good ideas. But they don't solve the problems that exist within the law. And the, the legal issues are the ones that a treaty would deal with. Right? And the length, well, I mean, it's, it, I would like it to happen in next year, but it, you know the development of international law takes time, and I don't think that's a, 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 a strong argument against embarking on the process. Then, a more worrying set of concerns he raises is the fact that the world is divided on these matters, okay? and that we have essentially um, the voting record in the Human Rights Council um, shows that uh, we have quite a div division, mostly those against were European countries and the United States, and then uh, a large number of countries uh, in favor, uh, including most of the BRICS group, okay, uh, uh, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Okay, South Africa actually leading the charge on this, um, and a number of developing countries, and in a number of them abstained, mostly Latin American countries, which is also a very strange thing. It's always kind of hard to understand why Latin America abstained, but hopefully there's going to be quite concerted effort. I know some civil society organizations that are really, really trying to push Latin America in uh, a, a, a stronger direction in favor of the treaty. So Raggy's argument is there's a lack of an ability to get consensus on a treaty, and as a result, we've been through this road before, 
during the 1970s and 80s, there was a process which ultimately just didn't lead to anything, and ultimately we won't get anything if there's no consensus, and countries like Europe and, well, countries in Europe and the United States do not uh, sign on, then what's the use, okay? So my response is, well, ultimately we need to find a new consensus, right? Um, the world has been divided on many things which eventually become accepted and part of the international framework. And as I was reading for this, I found it very interesting to find things that are very basic. The Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties and the Jus Cogens norms was highly controversial. Right? It's not something most people even think about today. Right? I didn't know that as I was, I was, I was, uh, you know, before reading for this. The Rome Statute, of course, more recently, was controversial. In elements of international environmental law, were there was division. There was division around World Trade Organization uh, uh, agreements. Okay. So it's not like international politics and international law is not used to dividing and being developed within the, the framework of great divisions that exist. And somehow one finds a way to come together. So how does one do that? Well, I think, you know, there's hard work to be done in developed countries. I think there needs to be a concerted effort. I see no reason why European countries should oppose this. Um, I think it goes against the commitment to fundamental rights. And, um, you know, you people have uh, activism possibilities here in the UK and other places to actually push, uh, really, the government to move away from that self-interested point of view. And then I think also what's quite interesting is the global change in power relations. So the fact that the BRICS group is supporting this, which is itself interesting, um, uh, it, uh, raises uh, interesting questions about the fact that if de facto China, India, uh, uh, Russia, and maybe Brazil as well, accept this kind of treaty, it's going to place quite a strong pressure on uh, Europe and the United States uh, as well. And com companies de facto are going to have to operate in many ways uh, in relation to these standards. So I think there's a sort of interesting global change that has happened. I think it's also interesting because many of these countries have recognized the need for them to have a standard and they don't want to be competing on the basis of fundamental rights or not knowing what to do and then criticize. And so it's actually better to sort of actually have clarity as to what the fundamental rights standards are. The case I've provided also, I think, provides reasons against the Treaty for Gross Human Rights Violations that Ruggie has proposed. He said, well, I think maybe to diffuse the push for a treaty, let's have a treaty, but let's only have a treaty focused on gross human rights violations, including such ideas as genocide, extrajudicial killings, slavery, as well as forced and bonded labor. And I suppose what lies behind this is a gradualist argument, an argument that this might be feasible, and, you know, one could argue, well, that has some merit, uh, you know, because of uh, what might be, be achievable. But I think there's some strong arguments against going that route. The first is that the scope is too limited, okay? It covers really extreme crimes, and there may be some business involvement, but business involvement hasn't been very extensive in that regard. And is it really worth creating a separate treaty for such a narrow band of crimes, okay? And really, his proposal is really similar to something that's been debated a lot about whether international criminal statutes, uh, whether Rome statutes should apply to corporations. Well, that's already being debated. Uh, one could simply push that and try and get that through and amend the Rome statute to allow for uh, uh, international crimes to apply to corporations. Secondly, it re in relation to all the various arguments I've provided, I think the Gross Human Rights Violations Treaty doesn't do a good job. Right? In relation to norm development, it has failed to address the general way in which businesses are conducted on a day-to-day -day basis and the way they affect rights on a day-to-day -day basis. And that actually makes the biggest impact, I think, on uh, human beings on a day-to-day -day level. And we need clarity on that. And so a broader treaty would have a wider impact. Moreover, 
and would fail to create a binding uh, general obligation with similar status to commercial legal obligations. So we're put in the same position where commercial legal obligations often take precedence over human rights, um, which surely gets things the wrong way around. And it would also not, it would not close the accountability gap in relation to uh, access to remedies other than in the most egregious cases. Okay, so uh, if you didn't fall within the domain of international crimes, uh, you wouldn't be able to get a remedy against the corporations, and I think that's perceived to be wrong. So, in conclusion, um, I think it's important to have a clear case for what such a treaty is. I've outlined four arguments, and I don't mean to say that as exhaustive, and I'd be very interested to have some of you, if you've got other arguments, I'd be very interested to listen to them, and uh, I think they're worth developing. Um, uh, I've focused essentially on problems in existing international law, which should be solved by legal solutions. And what I'm saying is there's a legal problem which needs a hard legal solution. Okay? It does not preclude other initiatives and forms of government. Okay? And the arguments that are provided, I think, provide the basis for assessing other proposals and why the Treaty on Gross Human Rights Violations would be inadequate, and also show some of the gaps in the guiding principles and other existing initiatives that exist. Okay? And ultimately, I think the vision is of a broad framework treaty that would include mechanisms to develop norms and hold corporations to account. And my view is that all those who are human rights defenders, so I welcome you to challenge this, because I think the stronger the argument, the better, okay? But all those who are human rights defenders should buy into this notion that such a treaty is important. Um, as I said, I, I, I think it's the, the reasons for a posi opposition from the US and Europe um, are just seem to be purely self-interested and they're hard to understand. And uh, it's necessary, I think, to push for such a treaty to grapple where, really with the challenges of international law in the 21st century and ensuring adequate protections for individual rights. And uh, if you want to see uh, the longer version, I'm not sure if it was distributed, but uh, the sort of version of the paper is on SSRF. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Oxford Human Rights Hub podcast. To find out more about the Oxford Human Rights Hub, visit our website at www.ohrh.law.ox.ac.uk. The Oxford Human Rights Hub, Global Perspectives on Human Rights.